Have you ever been picked last for something? Never. I know you, so I know that's a lie. Anybody else? Anybody ever been picked last for something? I mean, really at this point, it's almost a cliche. It's almost a playground kind of school-aged cliche that we, we hear, oh, yeah, you know, the, the kid that gets picked last, right? In the NFL draft even, they call the last pick Mr. Irrelevant. And it's the idea that, man, if you're the last pick, then somebody just thought that every other person that was chosen was more qualified or better skilled or had something to offer that you didn't have to offer. And so they picked everybody else and left you for last. I know what that feels like. My, we moved around a lot when I was younger, and, uh, and so when we were moving between my fourth and fifth grade year in school, uh, and so we moved to a brand new school, and the very first day of school, uh, I don't remember, I remember being the new kid. I don't remember lunch, I, you know, the kind of sitting by yourself at lunch. I think our class had to sit together, so I didn't experience that. I don't remember, like, you know, anything about the desks and walking in and being nervous and not knowing where to sit and who the cool kids were and who the cool kids weren't. I didn't, I don't remember any of that. What I remember is recess. I remember the first day of fifth grade going out to the playground for recess right behind our class and walking out there and one of the kids kind of holding, you know, the ball and saying, hey, we're going to play kickball today at recess. And I thought in my head, that's great because I'm good at kickball and they're going to notice that I'm good at kickball and I'm going to make new friends because of my amazing skills at kickball. And so somehow two people, kind of the alpha males of our fifth grade class, are chosen to be the two team captains of our kickball game, which was pretty much the World Series of Kickball in my mind. And so we set up this, you know, everybody else kind of lines up along the fence, and they start choosing teams. And this guy takes that guy, and this guy takes that guy. And they start moving down the line And in my head, it doesn't really dawn on me until about halfway through, oh my goodness, they're not picking me. And so they continue picking everybody except me. We get to even the two girls that don't want to play. They pick them and just allow them both to be on the same team. They did not want to play. And so they're like, yeah, we'll take both of you on that team, and nobody, I'm still standing against the fence, no one wanted to choose me, right? Does this not break your heart? I mean, no one wanted to choose me. Now, I mean, I I feel like even with the eyeball test, I didn't look like a completely unathletic loser. I was just the new kid. But no one wanted to choose me. And so finally, I didn't even get picked. I got assigned to the other team by team captain number one. He was like, yeah, I'll take the two girls that don't want to play, and you take that guy. That guy. That's me. I didn't even get picked. Now, here's what they didn't know. Where we used to live, I was an all-star baseball player. I had actually played kickball before. I was pretty good. They did not pick me. I was assigned to another team. And I remember, listen, here's the deal. I remember still to this day what that felt like. I remember going home and my parents being like, hey, how was your first day? 
and not being able to remember all of the cool people that I'd met, not talking about the fact that I'd gotten, you know, new textbooks and new, you know, school supplies and we're doing this and we're getting to change some classes this year, which was a new thing for me, and we're getting to do this, and man, this school's really nice compared to the school we were at or this thing I like. The first thing that I told my parents was this. In recess, we played kickball, and I was picked last. Well, I wasn't even picked. I was kind of assigned. Now, here's what you need to know. I killed it that day. (laughs) I kind of went into it thinking I will never be picked last again. Like, I was knocking over the two girls that didn't want to play to catch the ball and be like, you're out, and I'm so sorry. I mean, like, I was convinced this was my one shot to make a good impression. But I remember what it felt like not to be chosen. I don't know if that has anything to do with what I'm preaching today, but maybe it was just therapy for me. I thought about that all week this week, and I thought about this idea of what it feels like to be chosen. We're going to start a brand new series today called Come to the Table. And over the next four weeks, we're really going to look at this idea of coming to the table that Jesus is sitting at. And we're going to talk about this idea of communion. Communion is something that we do. It's also maybe called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. It's something we do around here about once a month or so. But over these four weeks, we're going to take communion together every single Sunday. And we're going to spend some time during these four weeks understanding the different elements and the different things that are involved in that communion uh, meal together. But even beyond that, trying to expand that lens a little bit and look at this idea of communion in relation to us and in relation to Jesus Christ. You know, the word communion, if you define it, means the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on the mental or spiritual level, this exchange of thoughts and feelings on that mental or spiritual level, or in the context that we use it a lot, the service of Christian worship at which bread and wine are consecrated and shared together. And so this idea that communion can be this, not just this meal that we take part in, but also just the sharing of feelings and thoughts together on a mental and spiritual level. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip with me to the book of Matthew. It's the very first book in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 26 for a few minutes. The communion story, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, when you're looking at the four Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the communion story Uh, or or parts of that story, are are in three of the four Gospels. Uh, It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you can read different accounts of that Last Supper. But we're going to spend our time today looking at Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. And this is what it says. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, Jesus did four very distinct things, which will serve as kind of the framework for our series over the next four weeks. It says that he took the bread. It says that he blessed it. He broke it, and he gave it. 
And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at those four different aspects, the taking, the blessing, the breaking, and the giving. And those will kind of serve as the the framework for this series. And I I want to tell you right up front um, for transparency, but also not just for that, but also maybe for some supplemental reading for you, that two books that really influence this series and influence my content over the next few weeks um, are the, the book Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. N-O-U-W-E-N. It's a really great short read, and man, it's a great, great book that he wrote really just uh, for the purpose of writing to a friend of his that was looking to understand more fully. This guy was not a spiritual guy, but understand a little more fully um, what God really wanted in relationship with him. And then the second book uh, is a book called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. It says Tom Wright, but you may also know that guy by N.T. Wright. He's a great Christian scholar and theologian here in our day. And so these two books really help to shape the content of the next four weeks in in, uh, supplement to what we're going to read from God's Word. So I wanted you to know that right up front. But I'm going to quote some things out of uh, one of these books today for sure. Uh, But man, there's some really good material here. But the, the book Life of the Beloved helps to lay out this idea that Jesus taking the bread, blessing the bread, uh, breaking it, and then giving it away have unbelievable parallels to us and our lives and the ways that we live in relationship with God. But even before you get to what he did, you have to understand the context. And the context is that Jesus is eating a meal with his closest friends. I like to eat, all right? And and I like to kind of go with people either in my home into the place where we sit around the table and eat or go to a restaurant and sit around a table with a group of people because I love what happens at meals. Now, if you think about Thanksgiving or you think about Christmas or you think about big family meals, maybe you have a good image in your mind of what that feels like and all the conversation that's taking a place in little pockets around the table. Or maybe you have another idea in your head about what that, that feels like. Maybe you've been in recent days or recent weeks to a meal function with some people that you like or that you love or and you just sit around and there's a there's a conversation element that just takes place while you're eating in my experience now I joke a lot about eating in my experience some of the best conversations that I've ever had have happened at a dinner table I mean some of the the deepest or 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 most kind of connecting conversations that I have and some of the relationships that I have in my life happened either as we were sitting down as we were sitting there eating, or maybe afterwards. You know, you know what that feels like when you finish eating, but nobody's ready to go? Like everybody served all the courses, like all the appetizers and the meal and the desserts, everything's been served. Maybe coffee's even been served, and you just kind of push back from the table a little bit, and you get comfortable, and, and you wish you could loosen your belt a little bit just to kind of let everything that you ate kind of not hurt so much, and you just sit there, and you start talking. And you continue the conversations and you catch up with the people that you know and you catch up with the people that maybe you haven't seen in a while and you just have these conversations. And I want you to keep that image in your head over the next four weeks as we really talk about communion because I'm afraid sometimes we limit communion to what we experience in this room with the passing of a tray and taking out a little wafer cracker thing and a little tiny cup that has juice in it. And that's communion. But that's not really communion. It's our reenaction in those moments of what we understand to be the last meal that Jesus shared with his closest followers. And I think that their meal 
was much more like the meals I'm talking about at those restaurants or those family dinner tables than the passing of the tray that we might get to experience, at least in the context. And we'll talk about how we connect those two in a minute. Man, Jesus was preparing to eat the Passover meal with those closest to him. And the setup to Matthew 26 that we read is that his followers said, hey, where are we going to eat Passover? Where are we going to eat the meal? And and so he gives them instruction where to go and how to prepare it and what to do. And so they come together and they sit in that room and they come together and they eat a meal. They eat the Passover meal. And then it says that at some point at the end of that meal, Jesus comes together and he takes the bread. Now the word take is something that we know We use it all the time, but in the context that we're talking about here, this idea of taken is to claim or to lay hold of, right? That's what the original word means there. So he lays claim to something. He takes hold of a piece of bread that's there on the table or set to the side, prepared for him for what they were about to do. And so he comes there and he takes that bread. Now, when we read that, when we look at that, we understand that he's just picking up a piece of bread. But there is a larger implication once you read the story and you understand what that bread represents. He took something that he was about to explain to them had a far greater meaning than just the piece of bread that they could see. If you've attended here for any length of time, you know that my wife, Corey, and I have four kids. Cooper is 10. Branson just turned eight a few weeks ago. Tucker is five. He'll be six in May. And Kinley is three and a half going on 13. And uh, we have the three boys and then Kinley, the little girl. Tucker is our youngest son. He's five. And honestly, he is one of the sweetest kids in the entire world. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have a wild streak because he does. Tucker is what I would describe as the stereotypical youngest son. Now, even though there's a younger sibling, it's a different gender. So he operates very much like a baby. Uh, the baby of the family kind of deal. But also he has two older brothers. And so since birth, he's kind of had to fight for his place and fight for his ability to belong. And um, he's playing baseball now. And and it's amazing how intuitively he picks up some of the skills to baseball because since about two years old, they've been pitching live to him, right? My oldest son, we were hitting off tees and we were wrapping him in, you know, like mattresses and saran wrap not to get hurt. We didn't want it. But like Tucker, we're like throwing him off the top bunk. Like it's no big deal, right? He's, He's tough. And he has a wild streak, and he's a little bit mischievous in some of the things that he does. But a couple weeks ago, Corey had uh, all of our kids with her. I was, I was somewhere else, and she had all of our kids with her, and they went into a store. And this store has all kinds of different things, but Tucker was walking around, and he was walking through the back of the store, and he came to where Corey was at, and he was like, hey, Mom, look what I found. And he pulls back his shirt, and on his wrist is a watch, and it's a watch that fits him. And it's a cool sports watch, and man, it does fit him, and he's a really tiny little kid. Um, The doctors tell us he's in like the first percentile, which means that 99% of kids his age are bigger than him. Uh, And so he, again, he's kind of got a little bit of like, I got to keep up with with everybody, so he just beats him up. But um, he, uh, he, he found a watch that fit him, and so he had it on, and it was really cool. And Corey said, man, that's awesome, Tucker. That looks really cool. I know you like it. We're not going to buy it today because anybody that has kids or has had kids, you understand that if you buy something for one, you have to you know, empty your bank account to buy something for everybody. And so she wasn't prepared to do that that day. And so she said, we're not going to buy anything today. She said, go ahead and take the watch off and go put it back where you found it. And so he goes wandering off towards the back of the store, and, you know, she assumes he's taking the watch off and putting it in the basket where those watches are at, and she's kind of finishing up what she came to purchase, and on her way towards the register, 
she passes by the basket where the watches are, those little watches that he had on. And when she looks in, she doesn't see the one that Tucker had been wearing and should have taken off to put into the basket. Well, her mom, Radar, goes off and she thinks, he didn't do what I told him to do. And so she goes to Tucker where he's at, kind of right around the corner there, and she says to him in the conviction way that only a mother can say something to a child where he knows immediately he's guilty, she says to him, Tucker, did you take that watch off and put it back where it goes? Now, he did not have the watch on his wrist. And he just looks at her, and he says, no. She said, Tucker, where is that watch? And he reaches into his pocket, and he takes the watch out. Now, we're still in the store, so please don't call and press charges or anything like that. But Corey, as any good mother would do, said to him, Tucker, you can't put that in your pocket. You didn't pay for it. You, you didn't pay for that watch. And Tucker, here's the amazing thing. I was going to go back and buy that watch for you because we did find one that fits you. But now that you've tried to take something that wasn't yours, you can't have it. And you have to go put that watch back in the basket. And then we're going to go talk to the manager of the store and tell her what you were going to do. And so Tucker goes up to the store manager and he tells her that he had taken the watch that wasn't his and put it in his pocket with the intent to take it home. Now, it wasn't his, right? He had not purchased it. He hadn't paid for it. Corey had not paid for it. And so he was trying to take something. What was he doing? He was laying claim to something, right? There was something he wanted. And so he reached out and he took it so that he could have it. Now, here's where I want you to try to hang with me in this metaphor. You're the watch. I'm the watch. And Tucker is Jesus, except that he paid for it. What, what Jesus did is he looked at you and he looked at me and he said, I really like that. I, I, really, I really like that and so I'm going to lay claim to that. I'm going to take it for my own. And then, instead of just sticking it in his pocket... He died on a cross. And he said, there's a price that must be paid so that you can be mine. And so the cost of that is me. And so I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm going to give my life for yours. I'm going to pay the entire price that it costs for you to be mine. You're the watch. I'm the watch. And Jesus said, I want to take that. I want to lay claim to that. He didn't steal us. He bought us. Now, here's the, here's the breakdown in that process for a lot of us. I mean, we've heard it, many of us. We understand kind of what that means and what that looks like. And we think we understand that analogy and that story and that metaphor. And we get Jesus died on the cross and we'll celebrate that in a few weeks on Good Friday. And we get the story that he resurrected and he, he lives forever. That's something we celebrate on Easter. And we get that he came to earth as a baby and that's something we celebrate at Christmas. 
But sometimes we struggle to understand and connect the human, relational, emotional connection that God has towards you and I. Because I think when Tucker's walking around the store, he sees something and he lights up, right? He wants it. There's something about what he sees that he says, man, I've got to have that. And I think that's the same way God looks at me and you in some respects. And the reason that I think that is because there's a scripture that you and I can quote without even looking at our Bible in John 3, 16. This says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world, which includes me and you, so much that he gave. He paid the price. And it wasn't a small amount. It wasn't a dollar or two dollar or five dollar little watch in a basket in the back of a shop. The cost was his son. Again, I'm not telling you something that you haven't heard before probably. But here's another way that that could even be stated, and I've quoted this scripture a lot. It is becoming for me kind of a cornerstone verse of my faith. It's in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that I quote that verse so often and the reason I'm even reading it this morning is because for me that verse is one of the most countercultural verses in all of scripture. And what I mean by that is the truth of that verse in the day that it was written probably held an incredible kind of juxtaposition to culture. It didn't it didn't stand up about the way that culture was thinking and feeling and acting, but in present day 21st century America It is so difficult for me to put that thought into my brain compared to every other relationship that I have on earth, right? Because what this verse tells me is that God demonstrates love to me by doing this, doing something before I've earned it. By loving me before I've done anything to deserve the love that he's given to me. And here's the way that I would even say that. God's love was a choice. Now, I don't mean that in that he gets to choose and unchoose in the way that we choose and unchoose things. But what I read there is that God loved us. He chose to do so. He inherently just, his brain, his body, his emotional psyche, his, his nature, his character, which is love, just, just kind of spreads towards us. It just comes at us. And it's not in the way that human love is expressed here on earth. Because if you think about so many of the relationships that we have, we have a conditionally based love. Now, again, this is not something you haven't heard from me if you've attended here for any length of time at all. But what I mean is that so many of our relationships and so many of our emotional connections with people are based on the conditions that they meet for us. Think about it. If, if you do this, I, I start liking you more. If you can do this, I love you a little bit. If you can do these things, if you can continue to make me feel this way, I, I love you a little bit more. And the problem is, again, not a new thought for you, is that once that condition quits being met, 
my love towards you can stop because my love started when the action started. Our relationship began when we started feeling a certain way. And so, so many in our culture enter into loving relationships that are based completely on the way that I feel or the way that you make me feel or the condition that you meet in me. That's why it's, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to truly live that Jerry Maguire type of love that says, you complete me. Because the problem is, as soon as we look to someone else to complete an unwhole, unfulfilled, unhealthy us, there will come a day where they will disappoint you, disappoint me. The things that they used to do to complete you, they may not do today, and then you're left wanting, and then you're left lacking. And if enough of those days go in a row, if enough of those things happen back to back to back, we stay incomplete, we stay unfulfilled. Because they have quit doing what they used to do to make us feel loved and to make us feel full. And so now we're left looking and wanting and hoping that there's somebody out there that can complete us again. And we start looking for new relationships. And we start looking for new places where people can fulfill and complete us. And here's what God said. In Romans 5 and 8, The writer tells us that God says, listen, I love you. And here's how you know that I love you. I love you first. I mean, I've talked about my kids a little bit today, but I loved my kids before they could love me in return. You know how I know? Because they weren't even here yet. Like we just found out we were pregnant and I loved them. I didn't know what they would look like. Like one of our kids was born and he looked like a bug. He did, he had these big old eyes and like, but I loved him, right? I mean, he was my little bug. We called him bug man for a long time because I just loved him. Like maybe this makes us weird. I don't know how everybody does it, but Corey and I would like talk to our kids before they were here. Like, I would literally get in front of Corey's belly and just be like, I just love you because I just loved them. If I was writing Romans 5, 8 towards my kids and it had nothing to do with being a sinner, I would say to my kids, here's how I demonstrated my love towards you. Before you were human yet, I loved you. Before you were here yet, I loved you. Before you could make good grades, I loved you. Before you could do your chores, I loved you. And you know how I know that's true? Because they still don't do their chores, and I love them. I would say to my boys who love to play baseball, before you hit a home run, before you make a defensive out, before you become an all-star, I loved you. I would say to Kenley Grace, before you dressed up in a princess dress, before you performed at your dance recital, I loved you. That's what Romans 5, 8, from my perspective towards my kids looks like. And then we hear it in the context of God towards us. And he says, here's how I demonstrate my love to you. Before you could do anything, I loved you. Before you came to church the first time, before you paid your tithes, before you joined a group or a serving team, before you fed the poor 
and the hungry and the homeless, before you did any kind of social justice act, before you did any of the things that culture and society and even the church sometimes would strap on your back and say, this is how you demonstrate your love towards God. Before you did any of that, I loved you. And it even predates that because before you ever accepted me as the Lord and Savior of your life, I loved you while we were yet sinners. I loved you. God is all about being first, declaring first. In Mark chapter 1, we read this incredible story where Jesus comes to John the Baptist. And John is a guy who's been baptizing people in water. And that had been happening a little bit, but he's doing it in a little different way. And he's also declaring at the same time that Jesus is coming, the the Son of God is coming, the Messiah is coming. He's, He's declaring that. And Jesus shows up one day to be baptized by John. And we can read this account in Mark chapter 1. Again, this is even in a couple of the Gospels as well. But in Mark chapter 1, this is the way that it reads. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. You are my beloved son. Some translations say, on you my favor rests. You are my beloved. What was God pleased about? This was the beginning of the ministry. He hadn't healed anybody yet. He hadn't taught one sermon yet. He hadn't done a miracle. He hadn't pulled, you know, made five loaves and two fish and enough food for 5,000. He hadn't spit mud into a guy's eye and healed him from being blind. He hadn't done anything. So what is God pleased with? Well, I think more than even being pleased, the first part of verse 11 is where we should spend our time as we close today. God says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved. The word beloved means to esteem, to be dear, to be favorite, or to be worthy of love. I referenced this book. It's called Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. And man, it's a really, really, really great book. His subtitle here is even Spiritual Living in a Secular World. And it's a timeless piece. It really helps us to understand how we live in relationship with God in the midst of a culture that doesn't really speak to that. And I want to read a couple of passages here that he, he read, and I had underlined them. I mean, this entire page is underlined, but it's so good. This is what it says. It says, yes, there is that voice, the voice that speaks from above and from within and that whispers softly, or declares loudly, you are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. It's certainly not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are a nobody, unless you can demonstrate the opposite. These negative voices are so loud and so persistent that it is easy to believe them, and that's the great trap It is the trap of self-rejection. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success or popularity or power, but self-rejection. Self-rejection is the idea that we would not take on our right standing as the beloved of God. That we too are his beloved. 
We too are the esteemed of God, the favorite of God. My youth pastor used to say when I was growing up, I was a teenager, he used to say that you know, he, he pictured God's wallet being like his wallet where he would take it out and flip through the pictures and look at his kids and he would, you know, if he was holding up his wallet, he'd say, hey, this is my son, he's my favorite. And then he would flip to the next page and say, this is my other son, he's my favorite. And, and this is my third son, he's my favorite. And I used to get so frustrated when my parents would not just admit that I was the favorite like, nobody loved my brother as much as they loved me, surely. I mean, I had to be the favorite, but my, my mom would say, no, we love you both equally. And I was like, what a crock, until I had kids. And I love them differently. There's different aspects of the way that our relationships kind of show the love that we share with one another. But I don't have a favorite. I don't just say that, and if you're not a parent in the room, you're like, what a crock. Y- yeah, you do. I promise I love my kids equally. They are all my beloved. They are all my favorite. And God is saying to you today, you're the beloved. You're esteemed. You're dear to me. You know that because I loved you first. I loved you before you could do anything to deserve or to earn my love. You are my beloved. I chose you before you could choose me. I mean, all the other voices in culture, all the other voices in society are telling you you're no good. Nobody would choose you. Nobody kind of sees you as somebody worth, worth any value or worth their time or worth their energy. And I'm so sorry for that. I'm so sorry that anybody ever made you feel that way or that people now are making you feel that way. Because if there's any way for you to push those voices back a little bit and listen to the voice from above, And the voice from within, he's saying to you, you are my beloved. And in you, I am well pleased. In you, man, I'm so excited about what you're doing. I'm so excited about what's happening. In you, I am pleased. My favor rests on you because you are my beloved. Beloved, he chose you first. I want to read one more passage from this before we kind of wrap up our time. He says this, he says, in this world to be chosen simply means to be set apart in contrast to others, right? In my kickball story, which actually did have some connection to today, they chose other people and didn't choose me. When we're chosen, we feel like we're elevated above others, but when we go unchosen, we feel like we are lowered in value, and in rank. We compare ourselves to others so that we see being chosen as something that's about being set apart and different. But to be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It is not, listen to this, it is not a competitive but a compassionate choice. God looked down and said to you, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And I don't mean to burst your bubble, but guess what? You weren't the only one he said that to. He said to the person sitting beside you, here's how I demonstrate my love to you. While you were still a sinner, I died for you too. 
And he says to the person across the room from you, here's how I demonstrate my love to you. While you were still a sinner, I died for you. Being chosen by God as his beloved is not about rejecting others. It's not about making you the only favorite. It's just about making you one of his favorites. It's not a competitive choice. It's a compassionate choice. But here's a verse that I ran across about a year or two ago. I'm sure I'd read it in other readings of the Bible, but I ran across this when I was speaking at a a Father's Day event for kind of a, a daycare that they were doing. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God told them, I've never quit loving you and never will. Expect love, love, and more love. God told them, I've never quit loving you and I never will. Expect love, love, and more love. Sounds a little bit like a song to me. He says, here's, here's what you need to know. Not only did I choose you first, I continue to choose you. I've never quit and I never will. So here's what you can expect from me. Love, love, and more love. He's saying this. My love for you is unconditional. My love for you is not about you meeting a specific condition. It's not about you doing the right things. I loved you before you had the ability to meet the condition. I just love you. I've never stopped loving you. I never will stop loving you. Expect from me love, love, and more love. You're the watch. He looked at you and he said, I want to claim this for my own. But I'm willing to pay for it. And in paying for it, I'm going to actually give me as the price. And it was in that context, it was in that full understanding that as he sits down at the table with his closest friends and he takes the bread he knows that the price of the bread is him he knows that the cost of you sitting at the table with him is him for him to continue to sit at the table with the disciples he had to go to the cross he says you want to see my love I'll show you picks up the bread he breaks it he says I'm choosing you you are the beloved like it's you it's been you the whole time I've never stopped loving you I never will just expect from me love love and more love that's awesome but listen here's the deal You're the watch. Even you, Judas, you're about to walk out of this room and help me get to the cross faster. Like you're going to lead them back to me. But that's okay. Because I chose you. And when I read that story, I hate to think that I might be Judas. 
except that I know. Like I know. There's been tons of times in my life where I chose something other than him. It might not have been 30 pieces of silver. It might have been a relationship. It might have been my pursuit of possessions. It might have been laziness. It might have been my scheduling and my lack of prioritizing that relationship. It might have been poor choices. It might have just been outright sin. But there's a lot of times that I've been the guy that chose someone else. And yet Jesus looks across the table from me and says, you're the watch. I chose you. And I'm willing to pay the price even when you try to choose somebody else. My kids ask me all the time, Dad, how much do you love me? Right? And when they're little, you just go, oh, I love you this much. I love you this much. I love you this much. And then they get in school and they learn about like geography. And I'm like, oh, I love you to Kentucky and back. I love you to Pennsylvania and back. And then they learn about the solar system. I was like, I love you to the moon and back. I love you to Mars and back. And then they learn about that number that we just love. Like, I love you to infinity and back and infinity plus infinity. And I love you, right? And it's, it's this cliche thing. Like I need a felt board up here to lay this out for you. But Jesus looks at you and says, you know how much I love you? Boom. I don't know if it has that same romantic feeling, but you know what Jesus said? You know how much I love you? I love you like a piece of bread. When you break the bread, that's how much I love you. You know how much I love you? I love you like a cup of juice. That's how much I love you. Because he said to his closest followers who had no clue, and he says to you today who do have a clue, When you hold this little wafer in your hand in a minute, it's not a wafer. It's me paying the price because you're the watch. And when you hold that cup in your hand in just a minute, it's not just a cup of juice. It's me paying the price because you're the watch. And I choose going to ask our host to come now and they're going to serve us today. They're going to give us the elements of communion. And as they're distributing those, Danielle and Alan are going to sing a song. And I'm going to ask you to hold the elements in your hand. And I just want you to hold those in your hand in just a moment when they begin to serve you. And I want you to just hold them there. And I want you to look at them. And I don't want you to see a wafer and I don't want you to see a cup of juice. You know what I want you to see? I want you to see that he chose God demonstrates his love to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hold the elements. We'll come back and take them together.